Romans chapter 12. Romans, the 12th chapter, we're in the middle of a series. We've entitled Spiritual Gifts, The Design and Diversity of Ministry in Christ's Body. The Design and Diversity of Ministry in Christ's Body. And today has a subtitle, which is this, A Case for Cessationism. A case for cessationism. If you don't want that, know what that means, you hopefully will in just a moment. Romans chapter 12, let me read this section for us just to put it in context and then we'll dive in. Romans 12 verse 3, Paul writes, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but... To think so as to have sober-minded or sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have Gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, then each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I don't think I have met a believer who has been a Christian for very long who's not been forced to answer the question of what he or she believes about speaking in tongues or whether or not there are miracles today or healing, or the ever-present Trinity Broadcasting Network. And typically, when I have these conversations, they, they kind of boil down into two main questions. Number one, is this stuff real? Speaking in tongues and people getting healed and the miracles that are supposedly purported and the rumor mills of these things that happen in the deepest part of Africa that no one has a video to show. And the second question I get is, are these people, could these people actually be saved who believe this? Those are almost always the questions that come to mind. Now, I want to say it very clearly today and over the next few weeks and after first hour's experience, I don't have any idea how far we're going to get today. Um, I am a cessationist. Our church holds to a cessationistic perspective. Now, what this means is that we believe that some biblically specified gifts that are called sign gifts given by the Holy Spirit to believers in the first generation of the church, that those died out and ceased with the death of the last apostle. Now, on the other side, conversely, there are brothers, and I say that very 
carefully and very endearingly. Friends, brothers, blood-bought believers who believe the same gospel that you and I hold to, that believe that Jesus came as a man, God, very God, in flesh, all God, all man, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death for us on the cross, for those who have believed to be imputed the grace and the righteousness of God, and he rose from the dead three days later. These are brothers who believe that, sisters who believe that, and yet they are what we would call continuationists. Charismatic is not even a, an in vogue term anymore. It's continuationist. By that, that, they would say that all of the gifts, including these sign gifts, continue on from the apostolic time to the present day. I want to make a few important comments as we begin this study, and it'll leak into next week as well. I have very good friends. I have very good pastor friends who are continuationists. They're dear brothers. They are men who I would call to pray for me if I needed it. They are counselors to my heart. They have been friends for a long time, and I expect they will be friends till we see Jesus. I would have some of them preach in our church without any conscience, conscientious objection. They could preach in our church, but they wouldn't be elders and could probably not even be a member. Conversely, I could preach in, I have preached in some of their churches and could not be an elder in their church nor a member, but we share enough gospel reality and gospel truth that we can have fellowship. It's important that we hold these things in distinction, and we'll talk about that in the coming weeks, how that might play itself out. We share a common love and confidence in the gospel. We have a common love for Jesus. We believe in the resurrection together. We have a common love for the doctrines of grace and the sovereignty of God. We share a common love for the holy scriptures. We share a love for Christ's bride, the church, and want to shepherd her to be like Jesus in every dimension of life as regulated by the word of God. But we differ on this issue. It's an important distinction and an important difference and important enough that we should stop and take a detour from plowing into the next passage and understanding the application of the gifts, which we'll get to in the coming weeks, and say, what do we believe about some of these gifts? Do we believe they all apply today? Why are we, as a church, cessationist? And how do I answer to my friends who might be continuationists? Cessation comes from the word cease. We believe that certain gifts have ceased. Cessationists, continuationists, from the word continue, believe that all of the gifts continue. Now, as we dive into the understanding and application of the gifts of the Spirit of God in His church in the coming weeks, how those gifts are used to minister to one another, to build up the body, to edify, to equip, to encourage, we need to be careful to think biblically and exegetically about these issues, not experientially and anecdotally. And what I mean by that is just because someone has an experience that you can't explain doesn't mean the Bible is any less true. Our answer, our source for truth is God's word, not what someone says happened to them or what they did. No one is accountable to explain anybody's experience. All of us are accountable to explain what God's word says about the spiritual gifts. Now, this is an important detour that we're going to take to talk about this, and we'll get as far as we can today, and we'll see what we have to do to kind of 
clean up some of these details even next week. But what I want to do is give you some background on what we've done in the last two weeks, and then we'll take that detour together. So just a reminder, we're looking in specific at three ingredients for faithful ministry in the body of Christ in this series. Three ingredients for faithful ministry in the body of Christ. The first we looked at a few weeks ago, a proper evaluation of self in the body of Christ. A proper evaluation of self in the body of Christ. Verse 3 tells us that we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves, that we should minister our gifts with a position of humility, not pride. That plays big time into what Paul will call in the Corinthian letter, showy gifts and less showy gifts. More visible gifts and less visible gifts. All gifts, whether public, teaching, preaching, leadership, or more private, giving, serving, exhorting, sharing, those gifts, all of them have to be demonstrated in humility, not looking to ourselves. It's God who does it and God who's the giver of the gift. And so Paul starts by saying, don't think too highly of yourself. It's all about everyone else anyways. Humility, the crushing of pride and the pursuit of humility synthesize into the way we grow as believers and serve our master with our gifts. Second ingredient is in verses 4 and 5, a functional understanding of ministry in the body of Christ. Number two, a functional understanding of ministry in the body of Christ. Now, a functional understanding comes out of the illustration that Paul gives that Jesus is the head and we are a body. It's the idea of a human body. He's the head giving signals, giving uh, the brain uh, uh, stimuli that moves all the parts. Some are hands, some are feet, some are eyes, some are noses, some are lips, some are tongues, some are kneecaps, some are pancreas and livers and But everything functions together and has need for the other to make the body healthy and function appropriately. So we need to understand that there are different members, as Paul says, different parts, but they all come together as one to serve each other and make Christ look glorious. Now, before we get into the specific of these gifts, which begin in verse 6, We have to ask the cessationist and continuationist question because the very first gift listed is the gift of prophecy. So we have to say, okay, what do we believe about these gifts? Are there sign gifts and what what does that mean? So for today, I want to explain to you why I and our church hold to a cessationistic perspective with regard to the sign gifts. So we're going to have a new outline and just for today and look at it. And I'm going to get through this as quickly as possible. You might want to take notes. I, 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 don't, I don't expect you to be able to flip to all these passages, but we need to get some perspective. Six biblical reasons to be confident about cessationism. The idea that the miraculous sign gifts have ceased. I want to give you six biblical reasons. These aren't anecdotal. These aren't experiential. These are biblically rooted, textually driven, defined reasons to be confident about cessationism. The first reason is this. The nature of sign gifts. The nature of sign gifts. Now, some of our continuationist friends don't like that term, but that's exactly what Paul calls these gifts. They are sign gifts. Our charismatic continuationist friends claim that all of the spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and in 1 Peter are operative today. That would include healing, the gift of healing, tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge, apostleship, 
capital A, that they're still apostles sent out by God to be special representatives of him, and miracles. Now, as a cessationist, I believe these gifts passed away during the lifetime and with the death of the last of the apostles. And that's because God had specific uses for these gifts that were not needed after they died. That generation had need of these supernatural manifestations that subsequent generations did not, and we'll explain to you why that is. Now, two passages come to bear on this. You need to note these. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul talks about these as sign gifts. He says, the signs, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. These were signals. They were signs. They were indicators. And they were also attributed to the true apostles, not to everyone. (coughs) Hebrews 2, another important verse. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Speaking of salvation, the writer of the Hebrews says, after it was at first, he's speaking of a past time, at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God testifying with them by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Let's break these two verses down into what they teach us. The form, excuse me, the function and the duration of these gifts. The function of these gifts, of these sign gifts. Why would there be a need for sign gifts, signaling gifts? Especially in this first generation in the church. Simply, there was no New Testament and no church elders in this first generation. So how would they know that the gospel was true? How would they know it was supernatural? How would they know it was divine? These texts tell us that God attested to them with these supernatural giftings. No New Testament to verify. No elders appointed to lead and guide the church in truth. So these gifts were God's stamp of approval on this first generation of apostles, first generation of Christian rather, Christians who had these apostles to teach them the truth of the gospel. And the duration of these sign gifts The Hebrews passage speaks of the sign gifts being something of the past. Back then when this happened, he says, Further, we do not see the sign gifts, excuse me, these gifts of healing, these sign gifts, healing and miracles in the same way as we do in the time of the apostles today. These healings were instantaneous, miraculous, visible, unmistakable, withered hands began to work. The dead were raised to life. Leprosy was healed. Instantaneous. And I just have to ask an honest question of my continuationist friends who believe that some still have the gift of healing. Footnote, I believe God still heals. God can heal whenever it pleases him and promotes his glory. He is a healer and he can do it. I also know that the wages of sin is death. Not everyone will be healed forever, right? We're all going to die. 
God can heal. I've prayed for healing. I've prayed for something as simple as, please remove this cold I have to preach this morning to my son lying in a hospital bed saying, Lord, please save my boy. I believe that God can heal, but the gift of someone having the healing, this gift of of healing, rather, doesn't work out the same. If we have healers today, why are they not ministering in the hospitals? Wouldn't you expect if you, I mean, if you had the gift of healing, wouldn't you just walk down the hospital aisle and say, better, 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 much better, 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 better. Wouldn't that be a blessing? I mean, in Acts, you have people healing by walking through an apostle's shadow and touching a handkerchief that he touched. Boy, if I had that gift, I would likely use it in the hospitals. But you don't see that happening. Secondly, when you see these supposed healings on television, I mean, healing from a, 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 a sore back or healing from, a, from an ingrown toenail, healing from depression. How do you verify that in, in the moment? The healings in the, in, the, in the gospels with the Lord Jesus in the book of Acts with the apostles was verifiable. It was obvious and instantaneous. Unless the Lord said, go wash your eyes out, and there was a process, and he said there would be a process. So these, the nature of the sign gifts was to point to the apostleship and the gospel in the absence of the New Testament and elders. A second reason, the coming of, quote, the perfect. The coming of the perfect. Now let me say something while I'm doing this. I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, and just stay there for a moment. Um, let me say something that might surprise you. Everyone and anyone who believes the Bible is a cessationist. Meaning, everyone believes that the sign gifts will cease at some point. You know why? Because the Bible says the sign gifts will cease at some point. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 8. Love never fails. He talks about love trumping even the spiritual gifts. It's all about our love and care for one another. Yet the accent is on caring for one another, not boasting in our own giftedness. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, what does that have to do with revelation? They will be done away. If there are gifts of tongues, what does that have to do with revelation? They will cease. If there is knowledge, what does that have to do with revelation? It will be done away. So everyone believes that these things will stop. The Bible says so. The question then is, when will these gifts cease? We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, when the perfect comes, The partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child now and, and think like a child. Reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now if you break that down, we have to all admit 
Everyone believes, if you believe the Bible, that these three gifts will cease, right? It's obvious. Paul says so in two different ways. Individually, they'll cease. Then he says that they'll be done away because they're partial. They're not complete. When does that happen? He tells us when it happens. Those don't go away when the perfect comes. There in verse 10. So the question is, what is the, the perfect? Now let's talk about that for a minute. There are three major views of the perfect. I want to give you these three and tell you why I believe one and a half of them. First of all, some people say that the perfect is the second coming, is the coming of the Lord Jesus. And in the context, we see in a mirror dimly, we'll see him face to face. The coming of Christ is, is in context there. But G, uh, Paul never res, refers to Jesus as the complete. The, the word perfect there is the word teleos. It means the maturity, the, the completion, the, the finished thing. And it would seem odd if he wanted to say Jesus that he wouldn't say when Jesus comes, this will be done away with. Not only that, well, let me just tell you the other view, and then I'll come back and talk about that one. A second view is the closing of the canon. By the canon, we mean the New Testament. That this is whatever these three things are, tongues, knowledge, prophecy, which have to do with Revelation, they are partial. And when the finished, the complete thing comes, then the partial will be done away with. When the perfect comes, the complete thing, the partial will be done away with. So whatever the complete thing is, the, the perfect is, it's a completion in reference to the partial in the next phrase. And some think it's the finishing of the Bible. Um, that uh, once you had the New Testament completed, there was no need for tongues, revelation, uh, revelation through tongues, uh, prophecy, or um, knowledge. A third view is the maturity of the Christian of the Corinthian church. He's saying, look, I used to be a child and I grew up. You're, you're childish in your thinking. When you grow up, you won't need the partial. You need the complete. Well, let's break those down a little bit uh, real quickly. Uh, what about the coming of Christ? Could the perfect be the coming of Christ? Many, many who I love and respect believe this. I understand the context could indicate that. Let me tell you why I don't think it's Jesus here. First of all, only three gifts of the dozen or so that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, he isolates only three out of that list and says these three will be done away with when the perfect comes. The other ones, in other words, will keep existing. So if these three go away when Jesus comes, then the other ones keep going. So after Jesus comes, we would still have the need for giving. We would still have the need for helps, for administration, it doesn't make sense that those, some of those gifts have to do with the perfecting of the saints in a sinful world. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me that if this is Jesus, if Jesus is the perfect, when he comes, the partial will be done away with, that the other gifts cease. It, it may, that would make more sense to me if he said, when, when the perfect comes, the gifts will go away. Because we don't need them. We only have, we have Christ. But these three are isolated, and they all three have to do with revelation. Which inclines me to think that he's talking about the finished thing being probably the closing of the New Testament canon. Which, by the way, serves hand in glove with the maturing of the Corinthian church. Once they got that, they would not think impartial or think immaturely, but they'd have the full revelation of God. I think it makes more sense to see this as 
God finishing writing the Bible than the return of Christ because I don't see the need for the other gifts existing after Christ returns. And only these three are said to go away. And they all have to do with what God is going to say. And after he said it in the finishing in the New Testament, Old New Testament, he's done saying what he needs to say. Does that make sense? So I land that it's probably the canon, but would include the maturity of the Christian, of the Corinthian church. A third reason. The definition of tongues. We won't spend a lot of time here. We could spend hours tracing through Acts and um, 1 Corinthians on this. The definition of tongues. What are biblical tongues? Not contemporary tongues. What are biblical tongues? Well, in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19, tongues are clearly, indisputably, the gift to be able to speak another known language. In Acts 2.6, it clearly says, these were foreign languages that everyone heard in their own dialect. Not only their own language, their own dialect. They heard it in southern or, or northern or western. They, they heard their own dialect. So these were gifts given to someone to speak another language. Also, the gift given to someone to hear another language, their, their, their own language, hear another language that they didn't understand and hear it in their own language. Also, some people think that tongues is a private prayer language. We, we dealt with this, I don't know if you remember, in Acts 8, that tongues are a private prayer language. But that can't be the case. Romans 8, 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes, here's the word, for us. He prays for us. With groanings too deep for words. Some would say these groanings too deep for words are a private prayer language. Verse 27, he searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for us and saints according to the will of God. We, we noted this when we were going through Romans 8 that to pray for someone in Greek, the Greek language, to express that you pray for someone or to pray for someone in English is the same way. No one would ever <laughs> interpret me saying, I'm praying for you as I'm going to get inside your brain, animate your tongue, and speak in a language you don't know, and that's praying for you. Right? He, he prays for us. You know what that means? He prays for us. Doesn't mean he prays instead of us with a language we don't know, with groanings too deep for words. It means that we run into that dead end. Remember us talking about this? Run into a dead end of not even knowing how to pray. And he says, I'll take it from here. I know the mind of God. I know your life. What a gift that is to turn that into some private babbling. I think defames what God said here. So the gift of tongues was speaking in another language. That'll come back in our next, number four. Another reason I think you can be confident in cessationism is this. The limiting regulations for the gift of tongues. The limiting regulations for the gift of tongues. You can look at this if you want to in Romans, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about gifts. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about the 
uh, three of the gifts ceasing. 1 Corinthians 14 then talks about regulating the gift of tongues in particular. This is super, super important. People often ask me, well, what, what do you do with the fact that people have spoken in tongues? What do you do with their experience? And my answer is, I take that experience and I overlay 1 Corinthians 14 to see if it's biblical. Because 1 Corinthians 14 regulates and says, here's how to know if the tongues are from God or they are just general babblings that make no sense. So I tried to limit it and combine some, but I found, um, I found 11 regulations in 1 Corinthians 14. And I'm going to go through these fast. These are, these are qualifications that you can tell if it's biblical tongues or not. First of all, an unbelieving Jew must be present to hear the gospel from someone who does not speak their language, doesn't speak Hebrew. You say, huh? Listen, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, quoting Isaiah 28, verses 11 and following. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. It's the same language, again, in, uh, that Paul uses in, um, in, uh, uh, to, to the Corinthians elsewhere, saying, grow up. Grow up, be mature, like he said in chapter 13. In the law, it is written, how clear is this? By men of strange languages, that's the word for tongues, strange tongues, strange languages, unknown tongues, unknown languages, and by the lips of foreigners, people who don't speak Hebrew, I will speak to this people. And even so, they won't listen to me. Who is this people in Isaiah 28? It's the Jews. It's Israel. So for biblical tongues to be biblical, there must be an unbelieving Jew present. Look at verse 22. So then tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, specifically in this context, unbelieving Jews. The prophecy, we'll get into this next week, is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Paul says there, there's got to be an, it's, it's a sign to unbelieving Israel. Secondly, no more than two or three people may speak in tongues per service. I could have made this number 12, and, or a 12th one. It has to be in a public service. It can't happen privately. Never more than two or three people. During the gathered official worship service, no more than three people can ever speak in tongues. It has to be in order and never at the same time, as we'll see in a moment. Verse 27 says, only one speaker at a time. You can't have a service that multiple people are, quote unquote, speaking in tongues, and you hear all these languages, one person at a time, in order, and never more than three. It gets more specific. There has to be an interpreter present so that everyone can know what is being said. They need to say, whether by gifting of interpretation or knowledge of that language, I can interpret that. I know that language. God has given me the gift to know that language, or I can tell you from knowing that language, but I'll tell you what he has said. And as I said again, probably Hebrew. Verse 34 says, never a woman. This is the public service. Women are not to be speaking in a public sense in that service. So women were forbidden from speaking in tongues in this context. 
Number six, not in private. All gifts are to be done for the good of the church, verses 2 to 5 and verse 26. Number seven, if the tongues, the speaker, never rather will it be true if the tongues are something the speaker does not understand himself. In other words, he understands exactly what he's saying. He doesn't do what I, I had a little comic book years ago. Someone had given me uh, it's a charismatic uh, comic book given to kids, teaching them how to speak in tongues. It says, if you practice this enough, your spirit man will catch up, you'll understand, and he'll take over. And you're supposed to repeat these two sentences. She came in a Honda. And the next one, I want a bow tie. And it was teaching these little children, if you'll say, she came in a Honda, I want a bow tie, she came in a Honda, I want a bow tie, then you'll learn how to speak in tongues. I wish I were making that up. It's not private. It's to be done for the good of the church. And you understand what you're saying. Number eight, no one should be confused as to what's happening. Verse 23, verse 33, it's in order. No one says, what is going on here? This is weird. Number nine, it must bring a new revelation, verse six says, a revelation about the, the, the gospel to someone who doesn't understand. Number 10, it must not be unintelligible, rambling and bambling and words that don't make sense. And then number 11, it must be for the benefit of the, all who are there, especially the unbelievers who are present, verses 21 and 22. Now, Having given you those 11, and you could break those down and get about another five more if you really wanted to take some of the combinations out. People ask me all the time, what, what would you do if someone spoke in tongues in your service? Well, if it happened like this, I would say, wow, what a God. Look what God did. There's this idea of, I don't know if you've heard this, of people who are um, open but cautious. They're open to the spiritual gifts all being operative today, but they're cautious. I, I would say I'm closed but cautious. I'm closed, but if it happened like this, how could I do anything but say, it's like that. I have never heard in my lifetime of tongues happening like this, 1 Corinthians 14. Never heard it once. If someone were to stand up and begin what they would call speaking in tongues, I would stop them and say, look, this is out of order. 1 Corinthians 13 says all things are be done in order. You're out of order. Secondly, what language is this? And does anyone know this language? Thirdly, where's the unbelieving Jew? Is there a Jewish person here who's not, who's not a believer? And just start going down the list to, to see if this were tongues. Look, I understand the gift of tongues is there in 1 Corinthians 13, 12 rather. I understand that it goes away in... 13. I also understand that it's regulated in chapter 14. You got to get to 14. Number five, a fifth reason. We're going really fast. The reality of sickness and death at the end of the apostolic age. This is so humbling. The reality of sickness and death at the end of the apostolic age. It seems clear that these sign gifts were dying out, get this, even during the lifetime of the apostle Paul. Such a tender passage. 2 Timothy 4, 20. Erastus remained at Corinth, Paul says, but Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. Paul, 
Why did you not? Why would you not just heal Trophimus? Just, just heal him. You were able to do that in Acts. Just, just, just heal him. This is your friend. Even more so, listen to Philippians 2, verse 25. I thought it necessary to, to write to you, to send to you, rather, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all, was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Remember how much time it took to get these letters back and forth? Weeks, maybe months, and he was sick. And they had heard about it. He was sick for a long time. For indeed, verse 27 says, he was sick to the point of death. And I love this. But God had mercy on him. And not only to him, but on me also, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 30 says he came close to death for the work of Christ. He was sick for a long time. And Paul didn't heal him. And he was a close associate. Now, if you have people being healed because they touched a handkerchief or people being healed because they actually walked into the shadow of an apostle, wouldn't you think that they would exercise healing on a close associate and ministry partner? Seems obvious to me that these sign gifts were dying out even during their own lifetime. And number six, which we're going to dive into, this will be our transition for next week. Sixth reason... I think we should be confident about cessationism is this. The sufficiency of Scripture. Tongues, knowledge, and prophecy all had to do with revelation. We'll get into that specifically with prophecy next week. That's the first gift that Paul lists. What more does God need to say today that's not here in our in our Bibles. Once you open up to the possibility of God continuing to make revelations, you undermine the fact that he has spoken completely and clearly in both written and incarnate form in, in, in his word. Now having said all that, and we'll pick up here next week, I, I, I want to be, be careful to, to add this. It's easy for critics of cessationists to level um, an accusation or a criticism that could be partially true, which is that we believe as much that the Holy Spirit might have died in the life of the apostles as we would the gifts of the sign gifts, rather, of the Holy Spirit, because we don't seem to depend on him at all or reference him much at all. We would do well to listen to the words of Dan Wallace in his book, Who's Afraid of the Holy Spirit? It's a collection of essays from cessationists who said this. And I want to read it carefully and then explain what I'm saying and what I'm not saying, okay? Wallace says, Although the sign gifts died in the first century, the Holy Spirit did not. Cessationists can affirm that theologically, but pragmatically, sometimes we act as though the Holy Spirit died with the last apostle. What can we as cessationists affirm that the Holy Spirit is doing today? What did Jesus mean when he said, 
My sheep, listen to my voice, John 10, 27. What did Paul mean when he declared, all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God, Romans 8, 14. What did John mean when he wrote, you have an anointing from the Holy One, 1 John 2, 20. Wallace writes, I am increasingly convinced that although God does not communicate in a way that opposes Scripture... He often communicates in nonverbal manner, in a nonverbal manner to his children, giving them assurance, bringing them comfort, guiding them through life's rough waters. And then this sentence To deny that God speaks verbally to us today, which I would deny, apart from the scriptures, is not to deny that he communicates apart to us. Apart from the scriptures. Now, what, you want to be careful there. <laughs> this is how he communicates to us. But wouldn't you be as quick as I am to say, the Holy Spirit ministers to me with assurance, with comfort, with counsel from people and through people, with comforts when I'm down, with encouragements when I'm lonely, with do you believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and active? Not to communicate anything in addition to his word, anything contrary to his word, but in the application of the truth of his word to our own lives. We study this in Romans 8. We who are sons of God are led by the Holy Spirit. So as quick as I want to say I am a cessationist, I want to affirm the Holy Spirit is not dead God still heals. He works miracles. Look at me. Just, just for a second. Have you ever seen a miracle? Before you say no, look at me. Look at Rick. That I would be saved by grace, knowing the way I thought when I was younger and lived and that I will be thrust into the ministry of God's word and proclamation and spiritual leadership. Ladies and gentlemen and friends, that's miraculous. That you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you are alive because of the gospel, that's miraculous. That is dead becoming alive. I believe in miracles. I believe that God can heal. But I don't believe in miracle workers. And I don't believe in healers. As cessationists, we do not believe that the Spirit's supernatural work is mediated through gifted people for Him to minister to us. But He does use spiritual gifts that are not listed in these sign gifts that we'll dive into next week. And you should know yours and how to apply it. I know this was fast, and we're going to come back and recap some of this. There are biblical reasons to be a cessationist. And don't let anybody trap you by saying, yeah, but you don't know what happened to me, and you don't know what I've seen. Say, it doesn't matter. I know what God's word says. <laughs> 